Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The breach of the Nord Stream pipeline seems to prove what analysts have long warned, that Russia is preparing for a lot more subsea sabotage. We asked how such operations work and what dangers they pose to pipelines and internet connections. And you might have heard the phrase ikigai thrown around in life coach and personal development circles. But don't believe the origin story involving ancient Japanese wisdom. Truth is, the Japanese have a very different idea of what it means. But first... In America, it's the last dash in the race for the midterms. Debates are in full sway. I hope to earn your vote and bring Michigan back to a family-friendly Michigan. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate. Ads blanket the airwaves in close races. And political heavyweights are racing across the country trying to rally their bases. Who will fight for your freedoms? When you start a family, how many children you have, who you marry, who you love, do not boo. Vote. Together we're standing up against some of the most menacing forces, entrenched interests, and vicious opponents our people have ever seen. This election is not a referendum. It's a choice. A choice between two vastly different visions of America. In our midterm series, we've also gone around the country looking at issues and speaking to voters. Now, a week before the election, we're focusing on the Capitol, Washington, D.C., and what might happen there when a new Congress takes office. At the start of the summer, Democrats were stealing themselves for a world historic level of blowout in the midterm elections. And then over the summer, things improved. Idris Kaloon is The Economist's Washington bureau chief gas prices came down. And they also were dealt a bit of a gift from the Supreme Court, which overturned Roe versus Wade, which established a constitutional right for abortion. But now what we've seen in the last month or so of the campaign is that Democrats may have peaked a little bit early. The polls so far seem to suggest that there's been a tightening in races that Democrats thought that they might have a chance of winning. And inflation has been unrelenting. So what does that mean results-wise? If you were going to place a bet on an outcome next week, what would you bet on? I would bet that Republicans take the House of Representatives. And I think it's 50-50 on whether or not they would take the Senate. 
but I certainly think that there's a very high probability of divided government in the last two years of President Biden's first term. So let's explore what that means. With Republicans in control, probably of at least one chamber of Congress, do you expect gridlock or do you think they'll try to forge a working relationship with the White House? Well, they could hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but probably not. What happens if Kevin McCarthy who's the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, ultimately becomes speaker, is you have to imagine that all policy that passes will be subject to essentially three possible veto points. There's President Biden, there's the Senate, and then there's the House Freedom Caucus, which is the furthest right, most conservative group within the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. You know, Kevin McCarthy laid out a policy agenda that he called a commitment to America. We've created a commitment to America. We want an economy that is strong. That means you can fill up your tank. Which is essentially boiled over Reaganomics of tax cuts and deregulation. The Democrats have no plan for the problem they created. Who has a plan to change that course? We do. Pretty standard Republican stuff. Of course, it's not going to be something that Joe Biden is going to sign into law. So I suspect that we won't see terribly much policymaking. What we saw with Obama and his interactions with John Boehner, who was then the speaker, was that that conservative faction was very willing to insert themselves to try to scupper any deals that were made. And so if you imagine what's at the intersection of what Joe Biden wants, what Kevin McCarthy wants, and what someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene would want. That, in mathematics, is what you would call a null set, even on things that you could point to that Democrats and Republicans agree on, like the need to get tougher on China, the need to be more skeptical of big business. If you think about what that would look like in terms of actual legislation, things start to fall apart. The Republican case against big tech is that they censor conservatives. The Democratic case against big tech is that they're monopolies and spew disinformation. So I expect that you wouldn't see very much uh, substantive coming through. If Republicans do take the Senate, that probably means that a Supreme Court vacancy would go unfilled. Mitch McConnell, who did that under Barack Obama, has made comments suggesting that he would have no compunction in doing the same thing here. It would probably mean that a lot of administrative appointments to the cabinet and sub-cabinet level would slow down to a trickle as well. You mentioned Barack Obama facing a Republican-controlled Congress, and, and I'm sure you remember what we saw then was repeated brinksmanship, government shutdowns over the budget. Earlier this week, the Republican House of Representatives chose to shut down a government they don't like over a health care law that they don't like. Now, I've talked a lot about the real... Do you think that sort of high-stakes negotiation is going to come back? Very much so if Republicans are in charge of at least one chamber. I think that there will be very little of substantive agreement. But what you will see, I think, is Congress revert to a very destructive mode of operation where the only time they leap into action is when there's a cataclysmic deadline approaching. Either the government is about to shut down or the debt ceiling, which is a limit on the amount that the federal government can borrow, is about to be broached. The worry is that because this will be the maximum leverage that Republicans will exert, they will try to enact things like spending cuts, things like entitlement reforms, and Democrats will want a clean renewal. And that will be a difficult process. It might result in America's credit being downgraded again, which would be a problem, especially given the high cost of sovereign borrowing at the moment. And what about oversight and investigative powers? House Republicans have already scheduled a press conference on investigations for the week after the election. How do you think they're going to use those powers in the majority? 
when a party takes over a chamber like the House of Representatives, they get to appoint the heads of all the committees. And I actually think that that committee process might be more important than whatever legislation actually manages to come out of this session. And in particular, I think the most important committee will be the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, which is basically a watchdog for the federal government. The expected chair is a Kentuckian representative named James Comer, who, when I spoke to him, laid out his priorities quite clearly. He already has them in mind. Number one, quite clearly, is Hunter Biden, who is the president's son who has been in the news lately because of a laptop of his that was taken. Its contents have been poured over, which probably has a treasure trove of damaging information on him. But there will also be many other investigations going on on the border, on all the spending that the Biden administration has done and whether or not any of that has been wasteful. It will basically be a machine producing embarrassing stories for the White House, calling up people for testimony, calling up cabinet secretaries for testimony. And it will really, I think, throw a spanner in the works for the administration. And do you think embarrassment is as far as it goes or will they actually start impeaching people? And if so, who and why? So you've seen on the far right of the party that members have said that they want to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, who is the Secretary of Homeland Security over the border. And some, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, have even said that they want to impeach Joe Biden. I did introduce articles of impeachment on Joe Biden because of how he is failing and not doing his job at the southern border. But it's just worse than that. I am kind of doubtful that there will be a formal vote by the House of Representatives to impeach Joe Biden without better cause than they have now. And in any case, in order to secure a conviction in the Senate, you would need a a supermajority, which Republicans definitely will not have. So if it does happen, it'll be a lot of show and a lot of noise, but it won't materially matter. How united are Republicans in these aims, do you think? I think Republicans are united by their disdain for the Biden administration. That's fairly clear throughout. I think that they are relatively disunited in how far they'd like to go. The impeachment of Joe Biden is, is one example. The extent to which compromise is a dirty word also differs among moderate Republicans and the Trumpier faction, which I think is largely in charge of the party, even though Kevin McCarthy has tried to straddle both factions. What we've seen in the past has been that being a Republican Speaker of the House is a really unpleasant job. It drove John Boehner and Paul Ryan to early retirement. It's become clear to me that this prolonged leadership turmoil would do uh, irreparable harm to the institution. Uh, So this morning, I informed my colleagues that I would resign from the speakership. And, And, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who's a very ambitious guy, would like to avoid that same fate, but he already has a lot to deal with. We've seen in an interview that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a conspiratorial member of the Republican caucus and a bit of a Trumpy rock star, is openly warning Kevin McCarthy that she will need a lot of power in order to stay on side. So we're already seeing the jostling, and that suggests that even if it will be an unpleasant two years for Joe Biden, it will also probably not be the best years for Kevin McCarthy. So what does that say about where the balance of power lies in the Republican caucus these days? Well, we will see next week what that looks like, because if Republicans secure a small majority, that means that the Freedom Caucus, the conservative faction, will be relatively empowered, because even a small defection will mean things can't get done. If, in fact, there is a large majority, that will make 
life easier for Kevin McCarthy, who will be able to command his own agenda without necessarily having to kowtow to the Freedom Caucus. But all in all, it would be a very different Washington from what we see now, where Democrats have largely had to spend their time negotiating among themselves. They would suddenly have to spend a lot of time negotiating with Republicans. And we've seen over the last 10 years how fruitless those endeavors can be. All right, Idris, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. This weekend, The Intelligence will be releasing a special Saturday episode, rounding up the best of our midterm reporting all in one place, looking at the issues, the voters, and just how power and politics have played out over the course of the campaign. For more coverage of America's upcoming elections, listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. Last week, Idris and I joined Charlotte Howard to reflect on what Democrats have achieved over the last two years. Listen to that episode wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find all The Economist midterms coverage at economist.com slash midterms 2022. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. In late September, something big happened beneath the Baltic Sea. The Nord Stream 1 and 2 natural gas pipelines between Russia and Germany sprang enormous leaks. Gas bubbles have formed in the Baltic Sea off Denmark. The leaks were first spotted on the radar of a passing ship. It didn't look anything like a coincidence or an accident. Denmark, Poland and Sweden say they believe leaks in two major Russian gas pipelines to Europe are the result of sabotage. Seismologists reported underwater blasts before the leaks emerged. More than an inch of steel coated in approximately four inches of concrete. Not easy to break. A widespread assumption was that Russia was behind the damage. Whoever did it, though, it served as a stark reminder of how much havoc could be wreaked beneath the waves. In recent years, Western officials have become increasingly concerned about the vulnerability of undersea infrastructure. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. And that includes both pipelines, the pipelines that carry gas, and it includes the cables that carry electricity and, more importantly, that carry data. Undersea cables are estimated to carry about 95% of the world's international digital data. So they're fundamental to the modern internet as we use it. And the commander of NATO submarine forces said in 2017 that they were seeing what he called unprecedented Russian activity near undersea cables. In fact, as recently as January, we saw the head of Britain's armed forces, Admiral Tony Radekin, say a similar thing. He talked about a tremendous growth in Russian underwater activity in the last two decades. So I think it's safe to say there's a sense of jitteriness around the security of the underwater infrastructure on which we all rely. But what does that look like underwater? How would Russia go about damaging cables or pipelines? 
The bit of the Russian armed forces that Western officials are worried about is known by its Russian acronym of GUGI. And it's not part of the Russian Navy. It's actually an independent service. It reports directly to the Russian Ministry of Defense. And it has a variety of spy ships and specialist submarines, which are capable of working at extreme depths. And they can deploy all kinds of things, including mini submarines that can be launched from a mothership, and also divers, which the Russian military calls hydronauts, which I think is a fantastic name. The Russians, I've got to say, Jason, are not the only country, though, that can mess around deep underwater, right? In the 1980s, in the Cold War, America's Navy famously installed listening devices on Soviet underwater cables between their naval bases in the Pacific Ocean and then replaced the tapes every so often, making out with these great intercepts. And that went on for a number of years. We have also seen more recently other European countries investing in what the French call seabed warfare capabilities. So the French are investing in underwater drones, as are the British. And I think drones are increasingly the instrument of this kind of underwater influence because they can have longer endurance, they can go more deeply to depths that humans can't always do, and you can have more of them so they can span a bigger area. So it sounds as if the the technology for working underwater in this way is not unlike what happens on land, increasingly at a distance, autonomously, robotically. I think that's right. You could imagine a surface ship, even a civilian vessel, deploying a drone at some distance from the target. It doesn't have to be right overhead. And that drone could do many things. You know, it could detonate a torpedo warhead directly over the target, whether that's a cable or a pipeline. But it can also do things more subtly. It could deposit mines that can be remotely activated weeks or even months after they were laid. And so that makes it much, much more difficult to work out who may have conducted the attack. Working out who did something underwater can be very, very difficult. And indeed, the Nord Stream attacks are a good example of this because we're now over a month on. And while we have very strong suspicions it was Russia, we don't have ironclad proof and certainly no hard evidence that I've seen of precisely what it was that caused the explosion. But the Nord Stream attack was unusual in that it was a pipeline and not a cable. Are there not different considerations there? They are very different. That's absolutely right. Pipelines are typically relatively easy to find, but they're often buried in concrete, and so they require a pretty substantial explosive charge. If you look at the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, for example, it has concrete coating that's about 11 centimeters thick. And Danish officials say that each explosion caused a seismic event that's equivalent to 500 kilograms of TNT. That's about the same as a car bomb. Cables are quite different. Cables are sometimes pretty poorly mapped. They can become obscured by silt. They can move with the currents if they're not buried. And they're very often accidentally cut or damaged by fishing trawlers. So in that respect, attacking a cable and attacking a pipeline is a very different thing. And the effect of the attacks on each type of thing is also quite different. How do you mean? Well, there's only a few key pipelines, right, which are carrying gas to Europe. We had the Nord Stream pipelines that were pretty much inactive by the time they were attacked. We have a very important pipeline carrying gas from Norway to Europe. We have others across the Mediterranean. If you take one out, it can be a fairly big deal because you then have to switch to things like liquid natural gas that require terminals to import the stuff from ships, and you need to have alternative sources of energy. Cables are very different. I think there's a sense, Jason, that if you cut transatlantic cables, suddenly the internet just collapses and our civilization goes into darkness and we go into chaos. That is not at all the case. 
there's a very high degree of redundancy in most key cable routes. And so if one cable is cut, internet traffic can just move around another route. You would have to cut a whole bunch of cables to really completely take the internet in a country off, unless it was a really isolated island or, or territory. And cables can also be repaired much more quickly than pipelines can. The Nord Stream pipelines are going to be out of action for a long time, but cables are repaired all the time. So for example, if you look at the summer back in June, there were two very important data cables, one of them from France to Hong Kong, the other one from France to Singapore, that were disrupted. Traffic was affected for just four hours. And I spoke to the boss of one cable maintenance company, and he said most cable repairs take place within two weeks of a fault. The big problem is really just the number of repair ships and the stock of spare cable. It's not some kind of really significant technical challenge. It's just a practical problem of having enough ships and having enough cable. And so I think it's very, very important to understand that cables are much more resilient than we sometimes assume. So be it on cables or on pipelines, why is there a Russian focus on this underwater infrastructure in the first place, do you think? Well, I think that Russia is losing the war, as we know. Russian ground forces are having a very tough time of it. And Russia's strategy is to escalate by annexing parts of Ukraine, by mobilizing men from its own society, by throwing Iranian-made drones on Kiev, taking out Ukraine's energy and water infrastructure, as indeed we saw most recently in another wave of attacks on Monday. And this threat to European infrastructure is all part of that strategy of escalation. The Russian aim, I think, is to intimidate us Europeans, saying, look, you can support Ukraine, but who knows what's going to happen to your pipelines, to your internet cables, perhaps even to your satellites. Vladimir Putin is running out of military options, and so he is scrambling around to find other ways to hurt Ukrainians and to hurt Europeans. And I think striking at where he sees our vulnerabilities, whether that's our energy supplies, whether that's our data connectivity, these are ways for Russia to try and flex its muscles at this absolutely critical time in the conflict. Shishong, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jason. For lots of people, a job that does no more than pay the bills has to suffice. Fulfillment and a sense of purpose are just extras. But personal development types are flogging a means to guarantee job satisfaction, a simple means, perhaps, to a happier life. So I did about, you know, 20 years uh, in the corporate management world, you know, kind of typical working up the, the corporate ladder, I ended up in executive leadership and executive management. Norm Tam spent most of his working life aiming for that big corner office. Then, in his early 40s, he realized he wasn't happy. And that's when he became intrigued with a concept that would change his life. The term ikigai is rooted in, in Japanese culture. I was struck by the simple approach of, well, at the center of, you know, what you love, what you're great at, what the world needs and what you can be paid for, like... There seems to be this magical center to all that, if all those spheres can be unified. And it really got me thinking about, you know, am I actually living this? Mr. Tam is one of lots of Westerners who are sold on the idea of ikigai, a Japanese term that loosely means reason for being. 
So the Ikigai Venn diagram has four circles labeled what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. At the intersection of the circles, you see the word Ikigai. So the general idea is to strike a balance among those four elements, and that would allow you to feel Ikigai or fulfillment in your life and career. Moeka Iida writes about Japan for The Economist. This diagram was created by Mark Wynn, a British entrepreneur, in 2014, and it's gone viral online. Ikigai, say it with me. Ikigai. You got it, that's right. The four questions that I asked you are part of a Japanese concept. It's called Ikigai. Some of you may already know about it. Ikigai, the Japanese secret to living a purposeful life. A popular book by two Spanish writers, Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life, has been translated into more than 60 languages. It sold more than 3 million copies, and that book really helped globalize the concept. And the concept has really taken off in the self help scene. Norm Tam was so inspired by the concept that he decided to launch an Ikigai coaching business of his own in Montreal, Canada. And so, is this an idea that's popular in Japan? Surprisingly and quite ironically, it's not popular in Japan at all. When TED Talks, the North American conference, staged several talks about Ikigai, there was a tweet by a confused Japanese observer saying, Apparently, there's an ancient Japanese philosophy called Ikigai. Huh, what's that? And the tweet went viral, and the comment section were, Filled with a lot of Japanese people's comments、um, expressing confusion and frustration about how Westerners tend to exoticize and romanticize these Japanese terms. So, ironically, in Japan today, few give much thought to Ikigai. So, what is the cultural connection then? It's true the word Ikigai exists in the Japanese language, but native speakers don't really use the term in practice. And if they do use it, it's usually in the context of Small things in daily life, like spending time with your family and friends or enjoying hobbies. One academic I spoke to for this story mentioned if he decides to sneak out of a lecture to have a beer, that counts as his ikigai. So a lot of critics think ikigai is just another Japanese word that has been appropriated and repurposed to lend an aura of ancient wisdom or exoticism to ideas that are otherwise pretty banal. Just another example, you say. What, what are some others? So, kakebo is another example. It's been branded as the Japanese art of saving money, but in reality, it's just about keeping a notebook to keep track of your finances. And another example is shinrin yoku. If you're going for a nice stroll in nature or walking through a nice forest, it's more interesting and compelling if you call it the Japanese art of. Forest bathing or shinin yoku. There's also wabi sabi. So in Japan, wabi sabi refers to an aesthetic philosophy of appreciating imperfection. But if you search wabi sabi in English online, you see a bunch of photos of furniture. It refers to an interior design trend that embraces minimalist design and natural materials. It's not like this is only happening to Japanese words. There's a Danish term called huga, which Means something like coziness, but that has also suffered a similar fate. And going back to Ikigai, it allowed these Western corporate types to add an exotic spin on existing trends like career coaching and self development. 
So ikigai, as, as a Japanese person would understand it, is entirely separate then from, from the way it's been appropriated and used? I wouldn't say these corporate types are completely off the mark. There was a time in Japan's history when ikigai meant a lot more to Japanese people. So during Japan's post-war economic growth period, specifically in the 1960s to 1970s, Japan saw an ikigai boom of its own. So in 1966, a psychiatrist called Kamiya Mieko published a book called Ikigai Nitsuite, or about ikigai, which was a very thoughtful memoir based on her experience treating leprosy patients on a small island called Nagashima, west of Japan. So she was dealing with people experienced the most acute forms of discrimination in society. And her message was that individuals can overcome hardships as long as they have something to look forward to in the future. And that message resonated with the wider population in Japan. At the time, people's living standards were improving thanks to economic prosperity. But at the same time, people were experiencing new forms of alienation and exploitation, like working at factories or going through the dreadfulness of corporate life. And in that context, Ikigai offered some solace. So what about Ikigai today in Japan, now that it's become such a big thing outside Japan? So some Japanese people or experts have been very willing to capitalize on this global ikigai boom. They see it as an opportunity to advertise and promote Japanese culture. One example is this prominent neuroscientist in Japan called Mogi Kenichiro. He published an English book called Awakening Your Ikigai, How the Japanese Wake Up to Joy and Purpose Every Day. And he argued that ikigai is quote-unquote highly immersed in Japanese culture, and he provided examples related to prominent Japanese figures that are known to Western audiences, like the legendary sushi chef Onojiro and the filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki. Other Japanese people would like to see the concept make a comeback inside the country. They want the term to become popular again, so the diagram has been translated into Japanese. And they think Japan could benefit from ikigai as well. Japan is certainly not the happiest place on earth. Its suicide rate is highest in the G7, and its very toxic, demanding corporate culture has led to many cases of karoshi, or death from overwork. So knowing all of that, it's really ironic or funny to see how Western corporate types are looking to Japan to solve their own problems. But potentially this ikigai boom could trickle into Japan and push Japanese people to think what ikigai means to them. Moeka, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... 
partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.